Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Monday, March 16th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 33. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness blogs at www.patreon.com slash FamTaughtMe, and I'm sharing lots of visual resources on Instagram at FamTaughtMe. One of my passions is working with individuals to improve their menstrual or fertile life, and I'd love to work with you if you're interested. You can head over to Patreon, where I have a couple subscription tiers to get started. I've also created a paper charting journal for fertility awareness. You can order it by heading over to the blog. Endometriosis is a complex, full-body disease. It has been severely understudied and treatment options remain limited. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn about what endo is and what it isn't, to clarify all that we currently know, and to share the work of endometriosis activists who've been tireless in the fight to change the narrative around the disease. First, let's define it. What is endometriosis? Endometriosis is a disease characterized by the presence of lesions, located both on the reproductive organs and outside the womb. Let's make it clear from the outset that endometriosis lesions are different in structure and behave differently from normal endometrium. Endometrium, in other words, the lining of the womb that's broken down and shed during menstruation, is histologically different, meaning structurally different under a microscope, from the functional glands and stroma or connective tissue that comprise endometriosis. It's important that every time we talk about endometriosis that we make it extremely clear that though the issue does somewhat resemble it, it is not identical to womb endometrium. There is no cure for endometriosis. It is a lifelong debilitating and chronic condition. The best standard of treatment is excision surgery performed by an endometriosis specialist excision surgeon. Endometriosis commonly occurs on the pelvic structures, causing severe pain, bowel, bladder, or other pelvic organ dysfunction, inflammation, scarring, adhesions, which are fibrous bands of dense tissue, organ dysfunction, immunologic abnormalities, endocrine alterations, and infertility. Though endometriosis is commonly thought of as a pelvic disease, more research continues to amount about extra-pelvic forms of endometriosis. These forms are particularly understudied and more likely to be dismissed, but they are not as rare as previously thought. Current research estimates that endometriosis also occurs in the chest cavity, lungs, diaphragm, the liver, the stomach, the brain and brainstem, and the pelvic nerves, including the sciatic nerve. Once thought of as a female-only disease, endometriosis has also been located in persons with male phenotype at the bladder, near the spermatic cord, epididymis, vas deferens, testes, prostate, and abdominal wall. This flies in the face of much of what we've been taught about endo, that it's just really painful cramps, that it's a gynecological disease that only affects cis women during their menstruating years, and that it's just confused uterine lining or retrograde menstruation. As discussed in episode 31, Healing Menstrual Pain, Dysmenorrhea, pain just before and during menstruation, is not the same as endometriosis, in which pain occurs regardless of the phase of the menstrual cycle. It seems the real story with endometriosis is much more complicated. Sadly, endometriosis patients have a reduced quality of life because of the pain, and their symptoms are often dismissed when they seek diagnosis, 
especially when they're wide-ranging or full-body symptoms that they're experiencing. The average person will not see a diagnosis for 6 to 10 years, and even when they do, they're likely to be undertreated. This is a grave injustice. It's also deeply wrong that myths about the disease, misinformation, and unacceptable dismissal of patients continues to plague the information surrounding endometriosis. Endometriosis affects approximately 176 million people worldwide and remains the leading cause of gynecologic hospitalization and hysterectomy, many times performed needlessly. There are also stages to endometriosis, but it's important to note that unlike stages of cancer, for instance, they don't correlate with the severity of symptoms like pain or of the disease process, and that a better rating system is sorely needed. Based on laparoscopy results, endometriosis is categorized in four stages. Stage one is minimal, shallow lesions. Again, this does not mean that they are not excruciatingly painful regardless. Stage two is more lesions, which are deeper than stage one. Stage three is deep lesions and the presence of endometrial cysts, where tissue attaches to an ovary and begins to shed blood and tissue, resulting in a cyst and adhesions where scar tissue forms from the body attempting to heal, which can bind organs together. And stage four, where there are many deep lesions, large cysts, and many dense adhesions throughout the affected region. Endometriosis is not malignant in the way that cancer is malignant, but it being benign does not diminish the disturbance that endometriosis causes to sufferers daily, but research is still lacking in connections between endo and other malignancies. Now I want to talk about what most people get wrong about endometriosis. It's clear that people get a lot of things wrong regarding accurate information about this. First, no particular demographic or ethnic patterns have surfaced in association with endometriosis. Second, it's not normal for you to have chronic pelvic pain, pelvic pain that gets worse after sex or a pelvic exam, abdominal pelvic pain apart from menses, chronically heavy or long periods, bowel or urinary disorders often associated with menstruation, painful sexual activity, particularly with penetration, significant or debilitating lower back pain with menses, allergies, migraines, or fatigue that tends to worsen around menses, crippling menstrual pain, or catamenial pneumothorax, which is where air leaks into the chest cavity with lung endometriosis. Third, endometriosis cannot be truly diagnosed without surgery. As of late, pharma-backed researchers have supported the concept of a, quote, medical diagnosis, but know that there is no definitive diagnosis based on medical history and symptoms alone. Endometriosis presents with many different types of symptoms, depending on the person and their environment, which is why non-biopsy approaches hinder progress towards diagnosis. Surgical diagnosis via laparoscopy must be taken seriously. And fourth, endometriosis cannot be sufficiently treated through medical suppressives and incomplete surgery. Hormonal suppression with contraceptives has, quote, no effect on adhesion of endometriotic cells and cannot improve fertility. Consider switching to a different provider if you are told that medical management and diagnosis by treating without seeing through medical suppression is adequate. 
it is most definitely not, and it will only allow the disease process to advance unchecked. The most medication can do is suppress the disease in the short term. Symptoms will reoccur when therapy ends. Activists recently critiqued an article about endometriosis that was featured in Cosmopolitan magazine because it promoted dangerous drugs like Orlissa without presenting the debilitating physical and mental side effects. Drug companies are preying on people in severe endometriosis pain and targeting them with useless medical solutions. The sooner the disease can be properly diagnosed and eradicated, the better the long-term outlook for their quality of life. Limited surgery, as opposed to excision surgery, only skims or burns the top of the area and leaves pieces of the endometriosis behind. This is problematic and results in poor outcomes because it may result in more adhesion formation and disease proliferation, more surgical risks, increased expenses, and additional procedures. And fifth, endometriosis has severe mental health effects related to diagnosis, treatment, and with managing the overwhelming pain. A study from Monash University in 2014 found that patients, quote, feel angry and frustrated when they have experiences with doctors who misdiagnosed, did not diagnose, delayed diagnosis, or just generally didn't listen to their concerns, symptoms, and experiences. Furthermore, other studies indicate that instead of lending sufficient attention to patient complaints, many clinicians ignore or normalize them and that education, awareness, and disease literacy is sorely lacking even within the highest echelons of the professional community. One in four women with endometriosis take their own lives because of this terribly painful and lifelong condition. It's very serious. Now I'm going to talk about what causes endometriosis, what we know, and also what we don't yet know. No one piece of research has defined the cause of endometriosis. We only have theories, and many of them have at this point been disproven, which further complicates our understanding of the disease. So your physician may have an opinion about which theory is more relevant than another, but ultimately no one can truly identify a single cause. And it may be that there is no single cause, and instead it's a result of several mechanisms. One of the first theories was called Samson's theory of retrograde menstruation. Now this theory that the cause of endometriosis is the result of endometrium that traveled backwards onto the peritoneum membrane of the abdomen basically, and the ovaries implanting there, this has been disproven. We know that endometriosis is not comprised of actual endometrial cells that are backflowed and behaving abnormally. Despite studies that have been done to disprove this, unfortunately, it's still referred to when explaining endo, and it confuses the public's understanding. It's essential that we understand that there are various factors that contribute to the disease pathophysiology and pathogenesis, because this misinformation most often leads to failed concepts of treatment like hysterectomy or drug therapy or incomplete surgery. Another more promising theory is a form of immunologic dysfunction, which allows for endometriosis lesions to take hold. Though immune dysfunction may play a role in lesion development, endometriosis is not considered an autoimmune disease. It may be linked to several autoimmune disorders, though, and share an underlying pathophysiology. Sometimes the immune dysfunction is explained as apoptosis suppression, 
or the inability of the immune system to destroy foreign enemy cells. Endo produces inflammatory cytokines and other immune factors that inflame and promote growth of the lesions. It also shares many features with other immune diseases such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, including angiogenesis or the ability of those lesions to establish their own blood supply. There are two parts to the immune system, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system should be taking care of endometriosis lesions, but for some reason it's not doing its job correctly. It's been found that endosufferers have a lower natural killer cell activity in their abdominal fluid and reduced phagocytosis by macrophages, even though macrophages are present. The immune system should be removing these lesions, basically, but instead it's releasing these inflammatory cytokines and angiogenesis to support more development of the endometriosis. So that's kind of where the dysregulation is occurring. The adaptive immune system in endosufferers is also abnormal with more B cells, T cells, and antibodies present. This essentially means that we know that those with endo are going to have a different immune environment in their bodies than those who do not have the disease. Most of your immune function is located in your gut, and endometriosis is also closely linked to bowel disease. So another theory is that the cause behind endo is gut microbial dysbiosis. Endometriosis lesions and adhesions can occur directly on the bowels themselves, and intestinal permeability can lead to translocation of harmful bacteria from the gut to the pelvis and reproductive organs. These bacteria, like E. coli, produce a lipopolysaccharide toxin found four to six times higher in the menstrual blood of people who suffer from endo, which promotes endometriosis and inflammatory disease in general. So you have this connection between microbial dysbiosis and actual bacteria leaving the gut and actually traveling to these other areas that may be a possible cause or trigger of these lesions. So basically with this theory, we can prove that there is coexistence of immune dysfunction, but we've yet to prove like exact causality. Another theory cites genetic factors, as there appears to be an increased 7 to 10-fold risk of endometriosis in those who have a mother or relative with the disease. Dysfunction of HOX genes may also result in abnormal differentiation and migration of cells during the embryonic formation of the reproductive tract. Endometriosis has actually been found in fetuses, which suggests that there is an embryologic origin as popularized by Dr. David Redwine. Stem cells have also been linked to endometriosis because they've demonstrated the ability to populate lesions even in the absence of menstruation. This may explain the presence of endometriosis in phenotypically male bodies. And then there's the theory related to environmental toxins which cause cell changes, allowing for lesion implantation and dysfunctional immune response. Particularly, endometriosis has been studied in relation to the chemical group known as dioxins, especially when those dioxins were exposed while you were in the womb, although conflicting evidence abounds. Despite the many theories, there is no single set of criteria which can account for all cases of the millions of people that are affected with endo. It seems most likely that individuals are born with mechanisms which can trigger the disease at some point in your life. And this is probably the result of complex genetic and molecular factors, 
So the key point to take away here is that it is not a lifestyle disease. It's not a hormonal disease or a psychological disorder. And anyone who points to a psychological reasoning behind endometriosis is coming through a misogynist lens as there's no clear evidence to support that. Many people are surprised to learn that endo is, you know, not a hormonal disease because it's often associated or taught to be about estrogen in some way. But estrogen does not cause endometriosis, so it's not the case of having too much estrogen. Even normal amounts of estrogen can stimulate the growth of endo lesions. On the other hand, progesterone seems to have a positive effect on endo lesions by slowing their growth, though endo sufferers tend to have some amount of progesterone resistance. So again, there's a connection there, but it's not a causality. Because there are so many types of endometriosis, especially when we're talking about extra pelvic forms of endometriosis, this makes determining exact criteria extremely difficult. The centralizing symptom to all endometriosis is pain. Endometriosis patients are more likely to report throbbing type pain along with a group of other unique symptoms to their condition. Remember that endometriosis doesn't go away with menopause because it has been observed in teens before menarche, as well as those who've had hysterectomies. It is not a disease contained to the reproductive system. Pelvic endometriosis is traditionally defined as lesions of the tubes, ovaries, and local peritoneum. Extrapelvic endometriosis is wide-ranging and refers to lesions that are found on the gastrointestinal tract urinary tract, pulmonary system, extremities, skin, central nervous system, and even areas of the brain and nerves. There are also rare manifestations of the disease. The classic pelvic endometriosis symptoms may include but are not limited to severe painful menstruation and inability to use insertion products like tampons due to pain, chronic abdominal pelvic pain, constipation, rectal bleeding, bowel or bladder pain and symptoms, chronic fatigue, and infertility. In intestinal endometriosis, sharp knife-like pains that are from the rectum to other parts of the pelvis are reported. In bladder endometriosis, UTI-like symptoms are reported where there's difficulty urinating and severe pain with urination. In thoracic or chest endometriosis, coughing up blood, not being able to catch your breath, tight chest, pain in the chest and ribs, and lung collapse is reported. And in sciatic endometriosis, leg and lower back pain is reported. Due to the stigma, dismissal, underdiagnosis, and lack of access to appropriate care, there is a significant psychological and social impact of living with endometriosis, such as depression and other mood conditions. Endo has a profound impact on people's everyday lives. As you can see from these symptoms, each person is going to have a unique mix of them, and it cannot be looked at through the lens of the reproductive organs alone. It is much more likely that there are multiple body systems involved in the symptoms of endometriosis. As I briefly mentioned already, the only way to confirm a diagnosis of endometriosis is surgically. Symptoms and diagnostic testing like MRIs, ultrasounds, and CT scans may allow for an informed suspicion that endometriosis is present, but honestly, they're most helpful for pre-surgical planning. Surgically, diagnosis is achieved through a minimally invasive procedure called laparoscopy. The reason why laparoscopy is so important is because it allows for actual treatment of the disease. 
Recently, there's been a pharmaceutical-sponsored marketing campaign to liken patients to the idea of a medical endometriosis diagnosis. And despite over 50 biomarkers which have been studied looking for a blood test or other non-invasive diagnostic tool, none have had universal success. Now I'm going to talk about treatment options, what works and what does not work. There's yet to be a single cure prevention strategy for endometriosis, but we do know which strategies work and which are only band-aid fixes. There's a spectrum of treatment options, and some of them are much more helpful than others. Some of the less helpful treatments include medical suppression through GnRH agonists or antagonists like Orlisa, Lupron, Cinerel, and Zolidex. Synthetic androgens such as Danazol, oral contraception such as a less low overall seasonal Vizan, and injectable form of Depo-Rivera, I'm sorry, these names always get me, and aromatase inhibitors such as Femara. They come up with such interesting names for them. It is important to understand that medical suppression only treats symptoms. It does not treat endometriosis as a disease, and so you're likely to experience significant side effects from using these. If you choose to utilize medical suppression, make sure you are informed and consenting to this temporary strategy of pain management. Do not be led to believe that medical suppressive techniques will be an adequate treatment for endometriosis. And do not be led to believe that your only option is to manage your pain for years through suppression or in complete surgeries. Hysterectomy is also not a cure for endometriosis and is especially inappropriate for young people who need the benefits of the self-made hormones that are produced from ovulating. Not performing a hysterectomy is a lot less about preserving someone's fertility and more about preserving ovulation because the hormonal benefits um, include benefits to the bones, heart, and really your whole body health. So nearly half of the hysterectomies performed in the United States each year are for endometriosis, but menopause nor pregnancy are not cures, though this is also a false claim that is sometimes mentioned to patients as an option to them, um, which many people find very dismissive for a number of reasons. Unfortunately, many researchers and physicians tend to focus on the fertility part before the needs of the whole person, and many people are also denied hysterectomies on this basis. Although hysterectomy is not appropriate to treat endometriosis, what is needed is truly appropriate and thoughtful health care that makes positive impacts on the patient's ability to enjoy their freedom and choices in life with you know, such a debilitating con condition that really affects them day to day. Now, there are also alternative therapies. These could include things like physical therapy, acupuncture, aromatherapy, myofascial release therapy, dietary regimens, and other coping mechanisms for chronic pain that include mental health practices as well as certain nutritional protocols. Now, these may be helpful to mitigate symptoms and reduce pain, but likewise, they do not treat the root of the disease. So by and far, the most and really the only truly effective treatment for endo is laparoscopic surgery. Now, laparoscopic excision allows for the disease to be carefully removed from all the affected areas without damaging the adjacent internal organs or removing those organs. It is also imperative that the surgeon have the necessary skills and knowledge of the anatomy of the pelvic or extrapelvic nerves and vessels so that there isn't any nerve damage that's happening during the surgery. 
And if you're looking for an excision surgeon, you need to ask them about their specialty knowledge. Ask them about their experience with neurology, urology, gastroenterology, neuropelvology, as well as gynecology. And the reason for this, why it's so important, is because an incomplete operation may change the anatomical conditions. The adhesions and the scar tissue can make further surgical intervention even more difficult. So even experienced surgeons performing excision surgery have found that there is some reoccurrence of post-surgical endo in patients. And so it's extremely important that you determine which tool and which method your surgeon will be using, as there are a number of surgical approaches. Laparoscopic excision is only practiced by a select number of advanced gynecologic endoscopic surgeons, and it differs from methods of laser vaporization or electrocautery as performed by OBGYNs. And these less meticulous techniques destroy tissue, basically when they're doing the procedure and it makes microscopic evaluation of the tissue later on impossible. So that's a potential downside to it. And this sometimes leads to endometriosis tissue remaining where it can reoccur. A trained surgeon is also critical when persistent bowel, bladder, or extra pelvic disease are involved. You really need someone who is trained and experienced in doing this type of surgery. That's probably the main takeaway out of all of this is that you really interview them and make sure that you feel comfortable with the method and the tool that they're using and and that they feel comfortable with it. As discussed previously, medical treatments can only suppress symptoms of endometriosis pain. Sometimes menstruation is suppressed through contraceptives. And a recent drug called Orlissa has recently been approved by the FDA. This was in 2018 for the treatment of endometriosis symptoms. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review released a final evidence report on Elagolix, which is the actual name for the, what is under the trade name Orlissa, and this is made by AbbVie, where it voted that there was not adequate evidence to determine whether Elagolix offered a net health benefit compared with no treatment or treatment by a GnRH agonist or hormonal contraceptive in comparison. Key recommendations stemming from the roundtable discussion included that Elagolix has known known short-term side effects and no long-term comparative safety studies, and efficacy data in relation to several other well-established treatment options for endometriosis. It's therefore reasonable for insurers to develop prior authorization criteria for Elagolix to ensure prudent use. Patient organizations should band together to seek commitments from government research funding agencies and manufacturers to increase research, both basic and clinical, for common conditions affecting women's health, such as endometriosis. The report also stated manufacturers should engage with key stakeholders in a transparent process to evaluate fair pricing of new therapeutics based on the added clinical benefit to patients and manufacturer-sponsored research should enroll patients who reflect the population of patients commonly encountered in clinical practice and who are most likely to benefit from treatment. Manufacturers and researchers in endometriosis owe patients, clinicians, and insurers better information on the long-term comparative clinical effectiveness and value of innovative new therapies. They should take action to ensure that future studies directly compare elagolics with other treatment options 
using standardized research protocols that focus on outcomes that reflect what matters most to patients. There are other concerns that Orlisa leads to bone mineral density loss, suicidal thoughts, worsening of mood and liver problems like jaundice, as well as headaches, nausea, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. As we know, endopatients already suffer with these psychological issues as a result of living with the disease. It is another concern that doctors would try to push a type of pain management, a pharmaceutical, that could potentially be more detrimental to a person's well-being than it is in comparison to the pain that it's supposedly able to relieve. So that is something that basically endometriosis activists are finding that doctors and people who are connected to pharmaceutical companies are not really telling the entire truth and not obtaining informed consent before they try to push these new drugs that ultimately haven't been tested for long enough to even know if they really work you know, for healing endometriosis pain. And what does that really mean when you have this condition? I'm going to talk briefly about endometriosis and fertility because it is a debilitating full-body disease which alters the lives of those who are diagnosed with it. And this can be even more compounded if the person wants to become pregnant. Endometriosis is a major cause of infertility, and this may be because of several factors, including the first, which is painful sex, um, which prevents pregnancy, or adhesions, which prevent egg transport. Endometriosis, if it's occurring in certain areas, could even prevent ovulation. Uh, anatomical impairments can make natural con- conception excuse me, impossible, such as fallopian tubal factors, complications related to ovarian reserve, oxidative stress, inflammatory pelvic environment, or other coexisting endocrine disorders. But the good news is that when pregnancy is achieved, 96% of people with endometriosis will have a healthy live birth, and there's no correlation between endometriosis and C-section or any other adverse pregnancy outcome. If a pregnancy is desired, collaborative approaches to endometriosis infertility care are essential to working towards the outcome. Pregnancy attempts can be made one to three cycles after excision surgery, depending on the situation. The sooner endometriosis is addressed, the better likelihood of maintaining healthy fertility. So it is a main cause of infertility, mainly because of the environment, basically, of the pelvis, and especially if it is occurring there. And really, you have to work with your doctor to see what your specific endometriosis situation looks like to see if infertility is something that you can work at after having surgery. Now I want to talk about how charting with endometriosis can maybe be of help to you. It's hard because this is a condition that's mainly about pain and it is something that does require invasive care. So obviously charting is more like a guide. So the question for me is like, how can fertility awareness charting be of help here? What can, what can it do? Because it, it obviously can't do everything. So despite the charts not being able to diagnose you with endometriosis, there's still a lot of good that I think that they can do in terms of keeping track of your symptoms. You can also use the custom categories to take track of your pain triggers or to see if there's any other coexisting endocrine issues that are happening. It helps you put together your constellation of symptoms, 
by utilizing custom categories of your choosing, and that can help you recognize specific endometriosis patterns if you have them. And this can be useful for tracking your recovery process as well, post-excision surgery, to help you plan to get pregnant if you so choose. You can see if you're ovulating, you can get a good read on your estrogen and progesterone levels, and charting can also be useful for tracking your emotional state and keeping accountable to your personal regimen, whether that's certain supplements that you take or other mental health practices. And I find that when you can see things laid out in the chart, they become much clearer and easier to analyze than you know what it's like to just experience your regimen day to day. When it's actually written down, it seems to be just a clear way, a visual way. If you're a visual learner, especially, you're going to be able to see it. So hopefully in the future, more doctors will also learn to utilize menstrual chart biodata for the asset that it is, and patients and providers can work together to use that information, and that can create more individualized and thoughtful care. I think that would be the goal always with charting, but especially with something that we really still don't know a whole lot about. You know, there's still a lot of questions about endo, and I think it would help to, for clinicians as well as Um, people who are charting themselves to be able to see this data. Now, because endometriosis is a life-altering disease with no cure, the emotional aspects of dealing with it are really tough for many folks to work through. Positive coping strategies, I think, could be especially helpful here, including themes such as optimism, acceptance, affirmation of your healthy body, tension release, seeking out social support from fellow endo patients, active participation in the healthcare process, and working with providers who are skilled and knowledgeable about endo. There is no sugarcoating about the fact that endo patients go through hell just to be believed about their symptoms. Then they have to go through the hard work of finding the right surgeon, having laparoscopy to confirm a diagnosis, and then issues with healthcare access and costs. So all of this can feel really insurmountable when you're dealing with chronic pain and you're just trying to live your life. It's really difficult to tell you that it will get easier from my perspective. My hope is that with more accurate information surrounding the disease and the more that we push for endometriosis-specific research, as well as you know universal healthcare legislation in general, we will finally be able to give endosufferers the time and attention and care that they deserve. And so there's still hope for endopatients, and I want everybody to have that as the takeaway that there is still a lot that we can do and I think activists are doing they already are doing it and they're doing it very publicly so I wanted to share some resources if you want to get more help and do more research on your own so the first thing I would do is look into organizations such as the Center for Endometriosis the Endometriosis Research Center um Also, you can join Facebook groups such as Endometriosis Survivor, Endometriosis Support Groups. There are several of them, and I think it's really good to connect with others in in a social setting where you can actually talk about this with someone who understands, and you can share your story. I also suggest that you check out the amazing work of Wendy Bingham, and her detailed website is called extrapelvicnotrare.org, and you can learn intense detail about the extrapelvic forms that you might be having a lot of trouble navigating the healthcare system um, if you are having these symptoms 
and I think her resource is really valuable. Um, you can also keep tabs on a new film that's coming out. It's called Endo Uncovered. I'm very excited for it. And there are also many endometriosis activists that are congregating online, especially on social media, on pretty much all the platforms, Twitter, Instagram. You're going to be able to find them on Facebook. These are good places to start to get more detailed and less biased information about treatment. It cuts through a lot of the marketing and and some of the more moneyed interests in treating endometriosis. And you can actually talk to real people who are navigating the system, trying to figure it out, and also fighting back against people who are preying on people who are suffering from endo. So I think that going into those social media spaces and getting to know others is essential to kind of navigating this um, and getting the most accurate information. So I hope you're able to gain some insight into endometriosis and that it's expanded your understanding. Before connecting with endo activists, I'd honestly never heard of extrapelvic endo. I didn't really understand what the disease was, and I'd only heard about it in reference to endo- endometrium, uterine lining. It's in the name, right? So that's the association that everyone gets. And after learning what I know now, I can see that we still have a long way to go in confronting the sexist and misogynist healthcare system to get people the care they need and deserve. And ultimately, it's not the patient's fault that the system is so stacked against them. And it's a shame that it takes five to 10 years for folks to get diagnosed. That's just ridiculous. You know, it's a public health crisis if it were to be any other condition. And if you're hurting from what you believe is endo while listening to this, if it is possible for you, do not delay seeking diagnosis and treatment. And I just want you to know that I'm wishing you all the healing and all the wellness and that I am also going to be a part of this fight to make sure that we get people the treatment that they need and that we get to the bottom of why this is happening. I think um, that that is my commitment as a fellow menstrual activist. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please hit share. You can find the Someone Somewhere podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Anchor app. And it means a lot to me if you rate and review the show because it really helps more people find it. And this episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag fam taught me. You can subscribe to my Patreon and gain access to member services at www.patreon.com slash fam taught me. And please follow me on Instagram at fam taught me to learn more and to engage with me. I'm available for one-on-one consultations, and I'd love to work with you on your menstrual challenges, so feel free to send me a message if you'd like to learn more. This concludes episode 33 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.